everybody uh this is the first video sermon from six eight uh if you're upset about us closing for the next two weeks we're just trying to be a good neighbor to everybody else as lower marion is locked down all major gatherings and things like that um good news is that uh, sandy cove has given us the permission to reschedule our retreat so we're looking for dates in the future keep that in mind maybe that'll be a a blessing that more people can go uh, so sit back, enjoy this. I hope you uh, get what you need this morning. And also, just remember the sermon is online as well uh, on, on our website in print form and with questions at the end. And uh, there's also slides on there if you'd like to look at the slides. But uh, we are in the book of John. We've been looking at portraits of Jesus for the last five weeks. And now today we're in, in chapter six of John. And it's a lengthy passage about the feeding of the 5,000, so we're going to skip through it. If you have a Bible and you want to open there, by all means, open up and follow through with me, and that'll be great. Um, you know, they say never go shopping while you're hungry because you end up spending a lot of money. And John shouldn't write a gospel uh, when he's hungry and thirsty because everything's about eating and drinking. Uh, you know, we've, we, we've heard about living water that satisfies forever, and now today we're he hearing about the bread of life. And bread's good, right? You know, it's, but it's not exactly the staple for us as it was for these ancient people. You know, Indonesians, I noticed, could eat their fill of fish and chicken and vegetables, but if they didn't have rice with a meal, it was, they, they had just considered themselves not to have eaten yet. Rice was an absolute staple for the Indonesian diet. And Americans haven't explored the possibilities of rice as Asians have. They've made anything from soup to candy to, to desserts with it and things like that. Um, you know, after Indonesia, I found myself craving rice after eating it three to three times a day for eight years. And I still dream about hot fried rice with shrimp and who, who knows what else is in it on the side of a road in a dusty makeshift tent with motorcycles whizzing by two, two inches from your back and cats running around and, you know, a guy with a big walk, you know, cooking that stuff up for you. It's, it was crazy. But, you know, the first time I the first few times I sat out there eating that. You know, there's so much stuff in it. You don't know what's, what it all is. And you would pick things out and say, what's that to whoever you're sitting next to? But over time, you know, you just eat it, right? It's, it's just fried rice. And there may be arteries and, you know, pieces of goat stomach and brain, the fingernail of the cook, who knows in there, but you eat it. But you do know that he, he just washed your plate by dipping it in a bucket of dirty water one time after letting the rats eat the scraps off of it in the corner with... Uh, from the person before you and then he wiped it down with the same dirty rag that he wipes all the tables the old wooden tables down with as well um pretty nasty but you get used to it um you, you don't care right it's just good fried rice and you you start to trust the curing properties of peppers and hot sauce to kill all the bacteria and sometimes somehow it works right but the indonesian concept of food is if it breathes kill it eat it and eat every bit of it with rice they 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 would top off their fried rice with a crispy egg and generous amounts of hot sauce it was so yummy in the morning i loved it um, bread held the same idea in jesus culture for for these ancient people it was a staple which meant life to them so he's speaking their language in this passage the irish might say the potato of life the indonesians the rice of life but to these people, Jesus says he's the bread of life, sustaining us not just for salvation at one time, but in every day of our lives. So the question is, why do we follow Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus? Do we really want the daily bread of life that he offers, or are we looking for something else?
right? You know, this is a story about a crowd of people who had just followed Jesus because they had seen him healing the sick. In verse 2, you, you read that. It, it's, it says 5,000 men. But if you add in women and children, there's probably a, quite a bit more. And they found themselves out in a field without anything to eat. And Jesus feeds them by multiplying a few loaves and, and a few fish. And, you know, and, and it all goes well. And then after this event, his disciples get in a boat and they go over to Capernaum, right? And Jesus, at this point, stays behind on a mountain. Because in verse 15, he, it says, He knew that they intended to come and make him king by force. And later, he walks on water. You know, after, after, after this event, he, he walks on water out to the disciples in the boat, if you remember that story. And at this time, there's a remnant of this 5,000 people that are apparently hanging around looking for him. And after a while, they figure he's over with the disciples in Capernaum, so they sail over to find him, right? Verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Because they hadn't seen him walk in the water and get into the boat. You know, keep in mind, though, that, that they had come because they had seen him heal the sick. They had seen him multiply fish and loaves, and they had enjoyed a meal. Their, their bellies were full. They were satisfied, right? And, and they think any guy who can heal the sick and multiply food with a word, they gotta, he's got to be our king, right? So the question is, do they really want Jesus for what Jesus offers? Do they really want Jesus for what Jesus offers? And Jesus answers that. He ignores their question, and he goes straight to the heart of the matter. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Amen. So they got fed. You know, they're all fat and happy, right? It's a, but it's a sign that they're not following Jesus for what Jesus offers, but for what they can get from Jesus. And as he did with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and the man uh, at the pool at Bethesda, he begins to open their minds to stop looking down at their circumstances and to look up to him. And that's been a common theme in all these stories, isn't it? Pascal once said there was once in man a true happiness of which now remained to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate, he says, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, and that is to say, only by God himself. You know, in Greek mythology, King Tantalus was punished in the underworld. He was chained in a lake, and the waters came up to his chin. And every time he tried to bend down to get a drink of water, the waters would recede really quickly, so he couldn't get a drink. And over his head were, were branches laden with choice fruit, and every time he reached up to satisfy his hunger, they would, they would pull away from him. And so he became a symbol of utter frustration and temptation. And his name is immortalized in the English word tantalize. Isn't that interesting? 
You know, we as Christians on the opposite side of knowing Jesus may still have the same problem. We may not need food and water, right? We might be satisfied in those ways. We may not need a powerful king, but we need approval. We need attention. We get caught in our weeds of desire. All these things that we chase after and never really satisfy because they were not made to satisfy us. And the simplistic answer is to fill the void with outward sin, with pleasures or whatever. But the problem is actually much deeper than that. It's a problem of coming to the end of ourself and in total reliance on Jesus. Francis Schaeffer, during a particularly difficult time in his life, said, I have discovered the present value of the blood of Christ, the present value of the blood of Christ, meaning that Beyond salvation, the blood of Christ, you know, sustains him day in and day out. He has learned reliance on Jesus every day for his daily need, whatever it is, internal and out, external, right? Consider this question. When does a pickle become a pickle, right? When is it no longer considered a cucumber? Did you know cucumbers were actually pickles? Some people don't know that. When is it no longer considered a cucumber? When it's first put into the jar or when you take it out of the jar or sometime in between? It's a good question, right? We are saved. We are immersed in Christ, pickled in Christ, and then we begin to soak him up through and through in our daily lives. A process of total faith reliance on him, giving up self-reliance, relying only on Jesus, heart and life changed what we talked about last week, becoming like Jesus over time. Amen. It's re reflected in that verse that Rachel and Lindley chose to guide our daily prayer times leading up to the strategic planning me meeting on uh, May 2nd. And that is Hosea 10, 12. It says, sow righteousness for yourselves. This is a great verse. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Isn't that great? Love that verse. A verse which speaks of total reliance and spiritual formation with Jesus. But going back to John 6, verses 28 and 29, then the people asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. That's pretty simple. You want to know God? Believe in Jesus, right? Pay, place your faith in Jesus. To believe for salvation, but also to continually believe in spiritual formation for the rest of your life. And that's trust. They're already having thoughts of making him king, right? They ask this question in hopes of, of clear direction, right? Kings give orders. They tell you what to do. They lay out a plan to overtake your, your oppressors and things like that. But his answer is unexpected. He says, believe on the one that God has sent. And when Jesus speaks of believing, he is speaking of trust. He's speaking of total reliance. He's talking about becoming a pickle of giving up all control of him becoming your Lord. Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And to understand their line of thinking there, we look at verse 14, where they said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now that is a direct reference to Moses 
in his words in Deuteronomy 18:15, where it says, The Lord will, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So they're thinking back to that story of manna in the wilderness, and they considered Moses to have given it to them for 40 years. And they looked at that manna, and they said the same thing that I said about my Indonesian fried rice. What is it? Because that's literally what the word manna means. What is it? But they ate it, and they grew to rely on it, and it was sweet. In John 6, their eyes are still on their circumstances, saying, Moses gave us manna for 40 years. You fed us once. Show us something greater. Give us more food. If you're the prophet, we'll make you king if you can prove yourself to us. And they're missing the point of who Jesus really is. Not just a prophet, but the bread of life and flesh. They want to stay in charge of their own lives and for Jesus to be their errand boy. They don't, they don't mind a savior. Sure, you know, feed us. Sure, take care of Rome. But we don't want a Lord. We don't mind a savior, but we don't want a Lord. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread, uh, bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So God provided not Moses, right? In that story, only enough manna was provided for one day's need. It was a 40-year lesson in daily reliance on the Lord. And Jesus is telling them, this bread which comes down from heaven will sustain you every single day of your life, and you've got to learn to rely on it every day. So he won't be their puppet, right? He's offering himself, and just as the manna from heaven was sweet, so is Jesus. As if Jesus, as if he's, he's saying to them, up until now you've relied on yourself, but rely on me and I will bring you life. But again, relying on him means giving up the all-precious self. Verse 34, sir, they said, always give us this bread. I still on their circumstances, not on Jesus, right? Always give us this bread. So he clarifies in verse 35, he says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen to that, right? I can hear you guys saying amen down, out there, right? And with this statement, he breaks the back of their faulty understanding, right? And he launches into this great discourse explaining that it's his body and his blood which brings true life. And it's not what they wanted to hear. And they start to grumble just like the Israelites did under Moses. Finally, in verse 60, here's the result. They say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? <laughs> this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? It's unexpected, right? And not what they wanted to hear. And Jesus, right here, cleans house of all those who really weren't there for him, but only were there to get what they could from him get the, what they wanted from him. And the result is in verse 66. It says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer followed him. Isn't that sad? We pastors, we experience this often, because when we get down to it, the issue really is, is Jesus Lord of your life or not? Is he Lord of your life or not? We, we, we may not mind a Savior, 
sure, help me with my job, get me more money, get me this, get me that. But we don't like the Lord part. We don't like the Lord part. You know, there's a popular phrase out there right now <clears throat> called Love's, love wins. You've probably seen it, right? And it sounds great. It sound, love wins. Sounds great, right? But let me, let me say that that could be a mask for our pride, our disobedient hearts. Because it's not really love at all when total tolerance and acceptance and acquiescence to anyone's errant thought or unbridled desire or sin life it becomes love's de definition. Even when all of that means destruction and spiritual death for people. That is not love at all. The term should be Jesus wins. Since when everyone comes under his lordship, life and purpose and abundance are found. Self-denial and repentance of sin aren't only healthy things for us, but they are necessary in the Christian life. You can't have Jesus without having repentance first. And these people turn away, and they can't bring themselves to submit to him. They're fine with him doing things for them, with healing them, feeding them, getting them a job, protecting their kids, or what have you, right? But they want to stay in control, and they don't want to let go of the self. Living out of self-confidence and not out of faith. Or maybe we should say living out of self-righteousness and not out of Christ-righteousness in our lives. Problem is that those two things look a lot alike since they're both based on confidence. Both look very Christian, but they have very different sources of confidence. Faith starts from the point of recognition and acceptance of total human weakness and reliance on Jesus. The self, on the other hand, relies on moral abilities and religious accomplishments and visible securities. And the self has to have positive circumstances to survive. Self-confidence uh, finds its confidence in me and my circumstances. I, I, you know, I can say I'm a Christian. I can go to church. I can do all the right things. I can look very Christian. But if my confidence is in what I do, what I make of myself, on everything going well for me, it will always fail me. Some go the other way in their self-confidence. The person living in open licentiousness before the Lord saying, I define what's right and wrong for myself. I don't need Jesus to tell me what's right and wrong. He can help me, sure, but I'm in control of myself. I'll decide for myself what I'll do, what's good for me and what's not good for me. Self-confidence as opposed to self-reliance, or faith-reliance, I'm sorry. These are talked about in Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8, uh, it starts out saying, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, self-confidence, right? Who, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in all in, in the parched places of the, the, the desert, in the salt land where no one lives. But that's contrasted with the person living in faith in verses 7 and 8. It says, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It leaves, its leaves are always green and has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Amen. That's what I want. I don't just want salvation. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to seek his glory in this world and I want to be about his mission. 
And that's the person waking up every day, eating the bread of life via the crucifixion of self, unswayed by their circumstances, unswayed by the coronavirus, failures and hurts. You know, they don't wear their hurt on, on their sleeve and always, you know, batting people away with it or, or going back, running back to it because they don't need approval from anyone but Jesus. Relying on him, not just for salvation, but for our, our, our very identity, for our daily sustenance, even in internal parts. Self-confidence requires our, all of our circumstances to go well. Largely, Indonesia, for many reasons, wasn't a positive experience for me because before I left, things were great. I, you know, I had two businesses that were going well. I knew a lot of people through them. I, my preaching and my ministry was going really well at church. I was getting all my pats on the back. But that all changed when I got to Indonesia. I was back to square one of my learning. I wasn't, I didn't know the language. I, I wasn't the, the rock star I thought I was. No one knew me. They didn't know my gifts. They didn't know what I could give. I had severe culture shock and my, my character had been attacked with false accusation by another brother in Christ on my team. It was crazy. My precious reputation just dismantled, right? I had nothing. Thank the good Lord above that he loves me enough to let me feel that pain because I needed to feel it. Indonesia showed me what I thought was faith wasn't faith. It was nothing more than my spiritual pride. I started out dependent on Jesus and at some point I became independent of him. He took away my idol of self and he replaced it with himself again. I'd lost what I thought was faith, which was simply a dark self-confidence. Thank God for the grace of God. And I ended up asking myself at that time, do I know Jesus at all? Am I no longer really using the product that I promote, right? You know, it's easy to stand in the pulpit and harp on outward sins, but it's much harder to bring us to the point, to the foot of the cross, and to apply the gospel to the all-precious self. A.W. Tozer once said, the sins of self are not something we do, they are something we are. And therein lies their subtlety and their power. You know, we know that sin manifests itself in action many times, but, be, but it begins in the disobedient, prideful heart. Ingrained in the fabric of self-righteousness and self-pity and self-confidence and self-sufficiency and self-admiration and self-love, and you can keep going, right? Outward visible sin is only born out of these things. They are first and foremost a problem of the heart. And sadly, promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is way too easy to do. It is way too easy to do. You would think that good teaching and eloquence and more information would just preach it right out of you, but it can't. That can all be used by the Spirit, and we should preach, and we should teach, and we should pray for each other, and we should uh, explore the Scriptures, and that can all be used to change us, but the self can live unrebuked at the very altar of God. Self's the veil which hides the face of God from us. It can be removed only by soul surgery, never only by instruction. Just recently, two people, a husband and wife, told me their story of conversion and how both of them separately had these, these distinct uh, experiences, physical, almost physical experiences, where they felt something change in them. And, and suddenly, they this, this desire to stop living out of deadness and to start exploring the truth of God, and they started buying books and reading the scriptures, and next thing you know, they were Christians. Amen to that. Soul surgery. 
We can't instruct the coronavirus out of a person. The virus of sin and pride can't be instructed out of us either. There must be a work of God to free us from ourselves, inviting the cross to do its deadly work in our heart, bringing our self-sins to the cross for judgment, sharing in the sufferings of Christ to taste life with him by crucifying the self, to be willing to let that self die. And we do that through faith reliance on Jesus, being pickled in the living water of Christ, right? In verses 67 through 69, Jesus asked the remaining disciples, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter has this great answer here. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And we see right there that Peter is has, he's being pickled, right? He's dying to self. He's be, you know, Christ has become Lord to Peter, you know, not just Savior, but Lord as well. And that is evidenced by that rhetorical question, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You're the only one that can give us true life. You know, if it wasn't for the coronavirus, we'd be prayerfully ending this sermon and, and inviting people to the Lord's table. Um, but for obvious reasons, we can't do that. But we can't imagine it in our mind's eye. And, we, and I want to invite all of you, either once again or for the very first time in your life, to crucify that self and be pickled in Christ. In verses 53 through 58 of John 6, uh, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Being pickled, right? And then in verse 57, he says, Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Amen to that. You know, like baptism, the Lord's table is an outward symbol of an inward reality of what happens in us through Jesus, or due to Jesus, right? Due to his body and blood. He offers that bread of life. He offers that sacrificial blood, which saves us once and for all. But it also sustains us and changes us daily, transforming us into the likeness of Christ as we commune with him as the bread of life. D.L. Moody once wrote, I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of self-righteousness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will come and fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and self-seeking and pleasure in the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. I also believe that any man, that many a man is, is praying to God to fill him when he is full already with something else. Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray that he would empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. And when the heart is turned upside down and everything that is contrary to God is turned out, then the Spirit will come and fill us. You know, he's speaking of the crucifixion of self right there. Beyond just the avoidance of outward immoral action or just trying to look good in front of people, but crucifying even those internal heart attitudes which stand in the way of, our, of life in Christ, of, of, of becoming like Christ. Jesus 
calls us to turn away from self-reliance, to give up sustenance through any other avenue, through people-pleasing or accomplishments or pet sins or material wealth or judgmental attitudes or comparisons or performance, a desire to be recognized, self-centeredness, you know, self-righteousness, whatever it is. And the Lord's table serves as a challenge and a reminder towards daily spiritual formation to those who walk with Jesus. Maybe you've been happy for a Savior, but maybe you need him to become Lord today. So let's end this in a prayer towards that end. I'd like you right now to, at home to bow your heads with me, and I'm going to say some things leading us through this time, and then I'm going to give us a little time for silence, and then I'll close us out at the end. Now, for those of you who have walked with Jesus for a long while, Right now, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the parts of you which you've not yet surrendered and to give you strength to lay them down at the foot of the cross. For those of you who have never stopped, stepped across that threshold with Jesus, I invite you to do that right now. If you've never given your life to Jesus, just simply use this time to pray a prayer of faith right now. You, you can pray like this. Jesus, I recognize that you are the living water and the bread of life. And I turn from my sin. I turn from my self-righteousness to you, the author and creator of my life. Save me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let me rely daily on you. Come and be Lord and Savior of my life right now. Amen. You can pray that prayer in any way. It doesn't have to be exactly like that. And if you have prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear about it. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart right now, don't hesitate. Give yourself over to the bread of life. Accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and be reborn to new life. And let's all right now use our God-given imagination in prayerful silence now to commune with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to lead you into the presence of Christ. Imagine right now yourself in the throne room before Jesus, kneeling in your mind's eye, confessing your sin to him, repenting of that thing that keeps you from him. Ask for his forgiveness and then receive it. Ask him to reveal to you where you need to make him Lord of your life today. I'm going to give you just a moment to do that. can continue to pray if you'd like but I just want to close us out our time together and I really miss being with you today and hopefully we'll see you next Sunday but there's a good chance that we won't we won't be meeting this coming Sunday either uh, so we'll do this again let me pray for us father we thank you for today we thank you for what you've taught us and we ask that we would be pickled in you we would just be soaking you up to the very 
like center core of our being, that we would be changed from the inside out, Lord Jesus. That we would take on your properties. That we would take on your taste. That we would smell like you around other people. That we would exude you around other people. And that we would be agents of your gospel in this world for your glory and for your mission. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.